We're exploring the lives of two saints today. Uh, one is a recently named doctor of the church, St. Irenaeus, and uh, one is potentially to be named doctor of the church, John Henry Newman. Bishop Caggiano talks about both men and their lives and their works today on Let Me Be Frank. So keep your radio here at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. The app is on your phone's app store or at veritascatholic.com. And if you're listening to Let Me Be Frank on podcast, be sure to rate us, review us, give us five stars, and help us to reach more souls. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith focuses on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, go and visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve. Hey, Excellency. It's good to see you. Great to see you. The other side of Thanksgiving, huh? On the other side of Thanksgiving, how was it? Uh, so it's, as I believe you've said in the past, for you, it's your favorite holiday. It's also my favorite holiday, and it was it was great. It was great. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We had a, and and was your whole family together? Or? Yeah, so we had um, we had a smaller crowd this year. There were only twenty three people. <laughs> oh God, it's, have mercy, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Rula comes from a big family, <laughs> and uh, her oldest brother always hosts their whole side of the family, and they always include my side of the family. So my dad came with us, and uh, it's just great. It's just so great to hang out and eat great food and spend time together. Well, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I spent it with my family. Actually, the funny thing is this year, I did not have Thanksgiving dinner. What do you mean? Because I was with them, but I, uh, I I have some issues with my stomach. So I only had dessert. I didn't have actual dinner. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that funny? Yeah, but it's all about family. I have plenty of food in my life. <laughs> I don't have to worry. I'm not starving. There's no possibility of that <laughs> happening. And you kept the best part. But, uh, which is the dessert. Yeah, of course. Of course. Oh, yeah. Sick or no sick. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. So now who are we talking about today? Yeah, so we've got a, a cool show. We're going to talk about uh, uh, two, well, one new doctor of the church and one potential uh -huh. doctor of the church. So we've got uh, mm -hmm. on deck uh, uh, St. Uh, John Henry Newman and St. Irenaeus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, John Henry Newman fascinating man. So we're going to start with John Henry Newman. Okay. And I'm sure many of our listeners have read some of his works, Apologia, Vita Sua, and the whole, I mean, the man was brilliant without a doubt, but he was also very hard to characterize because in some ways he was, for lack of a better word, very wide thinking for the 1800s, 19th century. He laid the seeds for some of what was developed in the 20th century. But on the other hand, his personal odyssey to enter into the Catholic Church was fascinating, right? And it was as much an intellectual enterprise as it was his conversion into the evangelical Christian faith. So he had actually two conversions in his life, mm. right? So he's like, John Henry Newman is like a diamond. 
you glimpse him from different aspects and there are different lessons that are learned by looking at his life. The reason this is timely is because in Baltimore, the bishops were asked to lend their own support for the petition that the bishops of England and Wales have sent to Rome to name John Henry Newman a doctor of the church. So we voted. Two bishops voted no. Everyone else voted yes. <laughs> who were who those two bishops? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. There are ways to find out, but I'm not really, I believe that as is. Uh, so in effect, it, it, we've lent our voice to it. And so I thought maybe we could just kind of like spend some time in looking at different aspects of his life. Right? Yeah. The very first thing that I find fascinating is that his life almost spanned the complete 19th century. See, he was born in 1801 and he died in 1890. Now, in the 19th century, I mean, I'm not that strong in world history, but a lot of stuff was going on, including the French Revolution, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The growth of what I'm going to call the seeds of secularism and enlightenment and all the rest that was going on. But in England, there was a significant event almost halfway through his life, and that is in 1850, the Catholic hierarchy was restored in England. Wow. Now, why is that important? Well, we tend to forget that when Henry VIII took over the primacy of the church and founded the Anglican Church, of which the Episcopal Church is the American branch, that there really was no Catholic hierarchy, right? Priests were killed if they were publicly celebrating mass. There was the the tradition of priest holes where the more affluent Catholics would have priests come and clandestinely celebrate mass. Mm -hmm. And they would escape in these underground tunnels that would lead from, let's say, a home to the field where they would just literally, if they had to, escape. And you see some of this, um, you know, Brideshead Revisited and all this kind of uh, a periodic glance back to England, right, of an earlier age. And you imagine these libraries and you hit the right button and the, the, the shelves open up and whatever. But in fact, uh, we take it for granted. But there was a time when Catholicism was just literally unimaginable. And yet Catholics thrived, partially because they were persecuted, partially because of the presence of the Irish, who maintained steadfastly their Catholic faith, right? So the fact that so prominent a man became Catholic, and he was one of a number who became Catholic through the Oxford movement, which we'll talk about, came as a shock, right? That came as a shock to a lot of, and, and did not stir up a small measure of opposition and persecution, right, in England. So that's one thing to remember. The other factoid that I think is fascinating is that, if I'm not mistaken, Henry Newman, John Henry Newman was born in London. There are five Catholic saints who were born in London. Four of them are martyrs. He's the only one who is not mm. a martyr. Right? But, but again, it's a fascinating thing to think of. Now, of course, please God, there are many 
uh, unannounced saints walking the streets of London as we pray every 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 city, right? But nonetheless, it shows the kind of like the shift that was going on. Anyway, he had two conversions in his life. The first was to evangelical Christianity. And that was in 1816 when he was 15 years old. And he tells the story of how he had converted to that. And evangelical, he said it was his conversion into evangelical Christianity that was the beginning of the salvation of his soul. Now, evangelical Christianity, when I say evangelical Christianity, what comes to mind, um, Steve, in your own mind? Right? Yeah. I, I, well, I think of uh, Protestant, Protestant churches. Yeah, they even exist today in the United right. States. Actually, they've had a renaissance too in the United States. And some of the things that they believe in would be justification by faith. Yes. Right. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Right. The, the, right. And of course, their view of Catholicism was not at the time a very positive one. So it was typical in evangelical Christianity to see the Pope not as just someone to be ignored, but as the Antichrist right. yeah. <laughs> that had to be opposed, right? Because the, the Catholic Church was this, this um, disfiguration of what Christianity was in. It, it was seen almost as idolatrous because of our reverence for the saints and our Blessed Lady. And, and there was this polemic about how we worship all of these demigods and a goddess and all this stuff, all this stuff that was going on. But evangelical Christianity also has a great emphasis on, all right, the subjective, the feeling, right, and the subject and your acceptance of faith, not just as an infant but as an adult, that there's an ascent, right? So for John Henry Newman to make that first leap was significant, right, because it began a journey that didn't end with evangelical Christianity. Because one of the things that he began to realize, right, was that there was also an individualism that was rooted in evangelical Christianity, that there was this tendency towards that. There was a tendency for it to not necessarily be based in the dogmatic tradition of the church. There was a tendency not to see the church as the transmitter of revealed truth. And that the church had a history of doing that from the apostles. So the whole thing of apostolic succession, all those issues were not dealt with, which fascinated John Henry Newman because he was a true scholar. And as we've said many times, he you could add his name to the list of so many others even in contemporary life, that in the discovery of the fathers made a profound impact on his odyssey because that's where the, the notion of the church coming from the upper room in apostolic succession, who was the guardian transmitter of the truth and dogma that goes beyond just my subjective appropriation and belief in it, began to move him towards what was been unthinkable in 18, whatever it was for 16, which is to become a Catholic, <laughs> I mean, right? So 
one of the things I greatly admire of John, well, many things, but one of them is that he was honest in his search. He was humble in his search. He was intellectually disciplined in his search. That there wasn't a door that he would not go through if his mind led him to that and his prayer led him to that, right? There's a, almost a brutal honesty, which many of us could learn from in the contemporary world because many of us are very stubborn in not giving up. Um, our preconceived notions. Right? But for John Henry Newman, there was no difficulty in that, doing yeah. that. So he became a Catholic in 1845. That was five years before the restoration of the hierarchy. And he was one of the defenders of that decision, to re re which we'll get to in a little while. Okay. So um, he was an Anglican, basically. So he became a deacon. He was ordained a deacon, right, in 1824. So he was 23 when he became a deacon. And he was 24 when he was ordained an Anglican priest. And he was a marvelous preacher. Um, I wish I could preach like John Henry Noon did. Oh, my gosh. And his, his ability to... Um, to use the tradition and literature and the way he phrased things just captivated people. And yet it was substantial. It wasn't just, you know, kind of right. fluff. Right? So his intellectual journey as a preacher, when coming into evangelical Christianity, having these questions then begin to arise as he went forward, right? Began to raise some questions in his own mind. And in his preaching, he began to explore them. And so soon after, with some comrades, people of like mind, he began to give birth to what is called the Oxford Movement. Now, do, are you familiar with the Oxford Movement? Uh, very little, Steve? Excellency. In England? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, re I remember from when I studied Newman when I was a seminarian, but doing some homework for this, too, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, it really was a movement within Anglicanism, right, to try to rediscover... Some of the Catholic beliefs and liturgical rituals that were lost in the English Reformation. It's that search for the roots of the church. Mm -hmm. right? And again, how can I put this? A church that was born in the 16th century that had 15 centuries of history before it, you could choose to ignore it, but you're, you're, you're ignoring your own roots. Right. Right? And all the lessons that come from that and all the dogmatic struggles that came with that. And again, he chose not to. So the Oxford movement was trying to say, well, what's the basis for the Book of Common Prayer? What's the basis for the dogmatic tradition of the Anglican Church if it wasn't rooted in the earlier parent, which is the Catholic Church? So, and it was in the Oxford movement that, that John Henry Newman and so many others 
kind of delved into the fathers. And what he began to realize was that the church was an independent reality and that the church could not be ignored. Now, we've talked about this before, and we forget this because the church as a human and divine reality is the universal sacrament of salvation as taught by the Vatican Council. So it is the birther of the canon of scripture, not the other way around. The primordial reality is the, is right. the church. So the Oxford movement, by recognizing that, begins to delve into that and therefore opens the path eventually for Henry Newman, right, to make his way into the Catholic Church. And he wrote The Tracks for Our Times from 1833 through 1834. And in that, there was a. a um, there were a series of tracts and the, 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 the sermons that came with that. And this follows after his first visit to Rome in 1832. And of course, his, his, his voyage to Rome with um, a few people, including Nicholas Wiseman and others, he, he acquainted himself with the church. He had never been there and, and I think t taken up with a lot of the beauty, but it wasn't that wasn't the impetus for his conversion into the faith, but it was this exploration. And Newman in Oxford, right, preached at St. Mary's, right, a number of, of homilies. And John Henry Newman, there was one homily given by Keebler called the National Apostasy, which um, John Henry Newman said, was giving birth to the Oxford movement, right? And many converts came out of it. But what I said before, it was the fundamental question that began to haunt Newman, and that is, how do you resolve apostolic succession, and what's the integrity of the Book of Common Prayer for the Anglicans? Right? How, what does it stand mm -hmm. on? And so he basically said there has to be a, de a definite basis for doctrine and the discipline of the church. What was it for the Church of England if it wasn't rooted in the Catholic Church? So then he began to espouse this idea. You, you have heard of the Via Media, right? The middle way. Yes. And there was a time when John Henry Newman, right? Was, and so, so, so what do you recall of that, right, Steve? What, like what, how would you describe it to uh, our audience? It, could, could we say it this way? Say, no, no, no. It, it literally is what it means. Yeah. That you have the Catholic Church on one side, you have classical Protestantism on the other, and could the Church of England be considered like the middle way, right? The Via Media. Could, could, could an argument be made that it is, um, its roots are, are Catholic, it has a commonality with its roots, it's not Protestantism. Could that work? Right, and in the end, for Newman, it did not work. Right, it did not work. And why did it not work? Because the intellectual pursuit he had, if you begin to say, "Well, the roots are in the Catholic Church," then the real question becomes: Then why not? Then 
why do you need a middle way at all? <laughs> like, what what is it that would say, well, then you have to justify a, 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 a bridge there when, in fact, if the roots are Catholic, apostolic succession is rooted in the Catholic Church. The guarantee of the truth and dogma comes from the fathers, which are in the Catholic Church, where the liturgy of the Anglicans is based on the Catholic Mass in the Catholic Church. So why do you need a right. middle way? Or any other way. Yeah. In his mind. Or any other way. Right. And there was a, a moment in his life uh, where he says there was a, um, the, a, a quote from Augustine of Hippo that kind of was the catalyst. And Augustine was quoting, he's quoted against the Donatists of his time. Well, we talked about that, right? The controversy. And Augustine says that the verdict of the world is conclusive against the Donatists. Because the verdict of the world is to say this is the authenticity is in the Catholic Church. It's in the roots. So when, when Newman heard and began to reflect on that, that was the catalyst to say, then you know what? Then it, it was time to make that leap into the Catholic Church. Right? And so he did convert in, in 1845. And he became an oratorian, right? So the Philip Neri, right? St. Philip Neri of Rome in the 16th century created the, the Oratorian Order where there was secular diocesan priests who lived together in community, vowed stability for a lifetime, and their charism obviously was to teach, but also it's a community of joy, of fraternity. And that resonated very deeply, right, with John Henry Newman. And so he became an Oratorian when he entered into the Catholic Church. And he tried to create almost um, before he converted to Catholicism, almost like an Anglican monastery, again, to try to withdraw himself, but mm. it didn't work. So he eventually became. Now, could you imagine what the reaction was? His family, his friends, the Oxford circle that he, that, I mean, it polarized yeah. everyone because he finally said, this right. is it. And that whole Tractarian movement and the all, I mean, it, it was like the lightning bolt that kind of clarified the ambiguity. And, and Newman landed squarely on the Catholic side. So, the seeds of his wideness of thinking is extremely important. Because it was John Henry Newman, for example, who founded the Catholic University of Dublin, right? That was one of the things they was asked to do. And when he was asked about um, what does a Catholic university look like, he said two very interesting things. On one hand, he said a university should be able to do research and promote free thinking. On the other hand, for it to be Catholic, it has to be the guardian and teacher of Catholic doctrine and faith. And he did not think that the two st stood opposed mm -hmm. to each other. You could hear a lot of that echoed in the Second Vatican Council. The difficulty is in many Catholic universities, they do the first and questionably do the second. Right. Do they give 
uh, the students the opportunity to truly learn the fullness of Catholic faith and doctrine. And not be afraid to dialogue with the world or other religions. But if they don't have the fullness, what are they dialoguing right. with? Yes. So John Henry Newman really predates this by 100 years. But he was very clear as to what. You can do both and they're not opposed because the truth is the truth. Yes. You don't have to be afraid of the truth. Right? So that's one of many things, including religious freedom and all that he was very clear on and he laid the seeds for, for people later on. That's why in many ways he, his teaching has a long effect in the life of the church, moved the trajectory of teaching in the church in a very specific way and in a very orthodox and authentic way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That connection to the universities today, you can see that because every – university that is not a Catholic university has, or not every, but they have Newman centers, which is the center for Catholicism on campus. Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. Well, precisely yes. because of this, right? Because the universities are still doing the research and all the rest and promoting critical thinking, but they then provide the other half of the equation that Newman said you needed all yes. along. Right? Fascinating, huh? Fascinating. And it all comes to this one man who's remarkable. Yeah. Just a remarkable man. And he's still mm -hmm. he's still very much honored in the Anglican Church, isn't he, Excellency? So by two churches, by the Catholic Church and the Anglicans, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I mean I can't speak definitively, but I would think because they can't <laughs> escape the, the 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 monumental mind that he was. And if I'm not mistaken, was it not that Pope Benedict beatified Newman? Right? Yes. Was it during his visit to the to, to England? Right? So in some sense, it had to have been in some way welcomed, right? That the greatness of this man is being right. recognized. Yeah, yeah. He was beatified right in right. London. In yes, by by Benedict the Sixteenth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So, so in a sense, we could cast this before we take a break, right? In the university, in two other ways, there is, all right, truth that is revealed through natural knowledge and reasoning, and this truth that is revealed by the gracious gift of God. They complement each other, and a university should be the avenue to both. Right. So if there was a via media, it would be actually in the huh. university that Newman yeah. held. Right. So it was in 1888, by the way, in Oxford, that the first Newman Society was actually named. They existed before. It was named for him in 1888, which was two years before oh, he wow. died. Hmm. Right. What, what an yeah. honor that was. That's right? cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, Do we have more time? Uh, before yeah, we break? sure. You want to uh, say more about uh, Cardinal Newman? Yeah. Well, just one thing that I think is fascinating. Then we'll come back and yeah. just wrap up Newman. But um, you know, the libel laws at the time of the 19th century England were, were quite um, strict. And it's funny, but John Henry Newman was convicted of libel because of what he said and wrote against a priest who is, was a former Catholic priest who converted to Anglicanism. And the interesting thing is, is um, this priest who left the Catholic priesthood, 
and converted to Anglicanism had led a really uh, a life of debauchery. Mm. Um, his morals were just horrendous. And Newman said so. And unfortunately, in England at the time, um, he was found guilty of libel. He didn't go to prison. He had to pay a fine, a huge fine, because in order to absolve himself of the penalty, he had to produce every single person and every single witness to prove what he said about the priest, the ex-priest, was wow. correct. And he came close <laughs> to actually achieving it. Yeah. But this guy had affairs with married women, with single women. He was going around uh, selling um, uh, literally the oh sacraments. And he was one of the lead voices uh, stirring up anti-Catholicism. And Newman just called the task. And then he was himself, I mean, honestly, talk about, you know, he's not a martyr, but you got to—you have to say to yourself, you yeah. got to be joking. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But that was the, that was the age. Yeah, that was the age. Boy, I'm not sure much has changed. <laughs> so, yeah, no, unfortunately, no, not much has changed. And of course, uh, Newman became a cardinal of the church. And uh, two interesting facts about that. Cardinals at the time were bishops, of course, and they lived in Rome, just about. Uh -huh. Newman in 1879 was accorded the honor to become a cardinal, but he asked that two things be observed, that he not be ordained a bishop and that he not live in Rome. And both were granted. Yeah. Fascinating, no? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I didn't know yep. you could be a cardinal without being a bishop. There's an interesting saying yes. also, if I may. Yo, yeah, well, even even now you can be. I think it was uh, was the Francis name a priest, a cardinal. Of course, he was above the age of retirement. Oh okay. yeah, you can be. Okay. Sure, you can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Th theoretically, people claim a layman can become a cardinal. Hmm. Because it only gives you, it only affords you the 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 privilege of voting right. on the pope, uh, who the successor right. of Peter would be, which is a fascinating idea, right? But there are no plans to do that <laughs> that I'm aware of, but. So you have a quote, Excellency, mm -hmm. to take us into the break. Yeah, yeah. It's just summarized in in his intellectual like path forward, in his in this search for the integrity that he was looking for, and he was asking himself in the end, what was this? The quote, where would it all lead? He said, in the end, there are but two alternatives: the way to Rome, or the way to atheism. Nothing in between. Wow. Hmm. Isn't that fascinating? Right? Fascinating. Something, something for the listeners to think about during the break. Okay. So this is... Yes, absolutely. This is Let Me Be mm -hmm. Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, we've got a uh, discussion on St. Irenaeus when we come back after the break. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that 
they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. All right, Excellency, so... Uh, a, a potential doctor of the church in Cardinal uh, John Cardinal Henry Newman, and now a, a new doctor of the church, or newly named doctor of the church in St. Irenaeus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, John Henry Newman died in 1890. So if he's declared a doctor of the church, right? So he waited about 130, 35 years. Poor St. Irenaeus waited 1,800 years. <laughs> <laughs> the church, right? Because he was born in 140, oh and he died in 205. Imagine, so that's the second century. Now imagine what the church was like in the second century. But before we do Irenaeus, this, this, you know, I just, I, I had a, a, a session with the seminarians in, um, in, uh, in Stanford a couple weeks ago. We talked about some of this. And we use phrases, but we should define them. So if I said, what is a doctor of the church? Like, what makes a person eligible to be a doctor of the church? Mm -hmm. Right? Well, there are basically some Mm -hmm. characteristics. So number one is that the person should be an orthodox teacher, that the person teaches the truth. But a lot of people mm-hmm. teach the truth. <laughs> there has to be in some way a higher contribution to the understanding of the faith because of the person's teaching. So in some sense, groundbreaking may be a bit of an exaggeration, but your contribution to the knowledge of the faith has to be mm-hmm. singular. Right? That's one. A doctor of the church also is a person of preeminent holiness. So to my knowledge, all of them are saints. Right. And they are men and women. Right? So it can be lay people, it's priests, it's bishops, it's religious, it's the whole nine yards. And ultimately, you're a doctor of the church when the Holy Father (laughs) says you are. (laughs) Right? So you have to have an explicit (laughs) approval. Right, um, which is fascinating. Now, sooner or later, I would think that a Saint John Paul II will be named a doctor of the Church. I mean, yeah, I would think. I mean, because his contribution of the theology of the body—I mean, just yes. that alone, right? And he's had 
right? Sooner or later, they're going to be recognized. But that takes time. His canonization was very quick after his death. But that's going to take time, in part because you have to demonstrate the higher degree of contribution that goes beyond the age. Like, I guess we're in the next generation after St. John Paul II. So maybe a few okay. generations to really see the effect. But I think that's, I'm guessing, but I'll be gone. I'll be dead. But I mean, I think you'll see that. So Irenaeus had 1,800 years. And I think a lot of Irenaeus's theology was recaptured um, in the Second Vatican Council. So I think that's what illuminates Irenaeus's importance now, which we'll talk about. Now, what's the difference between a doctor of the church and a father of the church? Now, that's a very interesting question. Would it be timing? Part of it is timing, because you could be a father of the church and not a doctor. You could be a doctor of the church and not be a father of the church, right? So there are a couple of okay. characteristics about the fathers. First of all, they are those who lived before the 7th century, the 6th century, it's the 600s and earlier, right? So that's one. So it's antiquity. Second is orthodoxy, right? Excellence in doctrine and teaching with no error theologically. They are obviously men. The vast majority are bishops. Um, in fact, they may be all bishops, to my knowledge, in the fathers of the church. But they're not necessarily all canonized, mm. right? And of course, you have to have the approval of the church to be a father of the church. So it's interesting. The doctors span through all 2,000 years. The fathers in just in the first six centuries of the church's life. Okay, so how do we understand St. Irenaeus? Well, we have to see it in the larger context of what was going on in his era because... Let's look at history very briefly, right? So we have the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord by 33 AD. That ends. We have the apostolic period, which is the life of the apostles. And presumably John is the last of the apostles to die, which takes us into the second century, more or less, give or take, at the end of the first piece. Then you have the period of St. Irenaeus. So we're setting up, we're setting up the great struggle of asking the basic question. We believe in the divine filiation. We believe that this Jesus of Nazareth is the taking on of flesh of God's only begotten son. Now I'm using philosophical language, right? We know what Jesus attests to. We believe that salvation, he's the savior and redeemer. But how do you explain that to people who did not know him or the apostles? How, how do you explain the how? How do you explain the how of God still being in heaven and, and coming to earth and having human life? And so philosophy begins to enter and philosophy enters in and the struggle of how to use philosophy. So we've talked about all that. So now, St. Irenaeus is like in that in-between period. So he's reacting to the errors of his time, and Irenaeus is trying to use scriptural language and anticipating the use of philosophical language to 
answer some of these questions, right? That a logical mind would ask, saying to yourself, well, how could this be that he is the savior and redeemer and God made man? Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Yeah, of course. Steve? So it's fascinating, right? He's like the in-between figure, right? Among others. He's in between. All right, so now, what are the errors of his time, right? Well, there's a lot of dualism going on of separating the spirit and the body, the spirit and the world, with this idea that the spirit is good, and the world and the body is not good, or one could say irrelevant, or one could even mm -hmm. say evil, right? Depending on how far you want to go. And that dualism first extends to Old and New Testament. So like the Marcionists said, the Old Testament is done, only the New Testament. You have Gnosticism. And gnosis is knowledge. So this whole idea of the spiritual world is what's important. And the spiritual knowledge that only the, the elect and the saved have. And the rest of you people, it's just tough luck. It is what it is. You're going to be condemned into this material world. And therefore, part of, the, of Christian salvation is to be escaping this world. Right? The body is the prison of the real self. Does that sound like... 21st century, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Right? That the true man for the Gnostics is the homo spiritualis, the spiritual man, and the cosmos is dualistic, mm -hmm. right? So that there was a pre-eternity and, and, and the world in time, and you escape the world in time. Right? So it, it, it's... it's for the Gnostics that have, well, Gnosticism has been reborn in the 21st century. There is this, this, how can I put it? it it's not like a set religion. It, it has so many different variations, so many different ways of looking at it. It's kind of like more the, the parsley mm. in the soup. It's like, it's, it's almost like in the background of so much going on. It's, it's hard to kind of like get your hands around it, but it was there in so many different manifestations. Yes. Right, and so Irenaeus comes and says, "Well, no, no, no. This, this, no, no. It can't be, right?" So, what are some of the things he talks about? All right. First, if the error is dualism, then Irenaeus is talking over and over and over again about mm. unity. That the same God who created is the God who redeems. That the same God who is the eternal word is the same God who enters into the material world and participates in our flesh. That the same history that was creation history is the same history of salvation history. That the person is not just the soul or spirit, but it's the body and soul. And these are fundamental Catholic Christian principles that Irenaeus says very clearly in the second century, and we have not we have not strayed from that for mm. eighteen hundred years. Right. So to say that Irenaeus is an essential thinker is an understatement. Right. What's key to understand Irenaeus is his great 
exploration of a scriptural image. And the scriptural image is this, that man and woman is made in the image and likeness of God. And image is not likeness. Hmm. They are not the same thing. Now, you may say, well, what's the difference between the two? And this is where St. Irenaeus begins to go deeper into a theological understanding of how the Trinity manifests itself and who is ultimately the animator origin of both of those unite those um complementary but not totally unique uh, they are they are how can i put they are complementary but they are not synonymous that's the best way to put it right so he says that the image of which all humanity is created comes from christ comes from the prefiguration that Christ would come. He is the perfect image of humanity. And we share in the image of God through Christ, who would one day come into human life. The likeness of God, right, is that which comes to us that animates the image that comes to us from the Holy Spirit. So the fullness of God dwelling in us is God's image and likeness, right? Image from Christ, likeness animated by the Holy Spirit. So that we have all of God dwelling within us, right? Now, why is that important? Because this is where we have fundamental development in Catholic theology, right? For... Um, how we, we are distinct from our Protestant brothers and sisters. Right? So he uses this beautiful theology of um, the father having two hands. One hand is the hand that is Christ. The other hand is the hand of the Holy Spirit. And that when sin entered into the world, the image that comes from us through Christ was not lost but was debilitated. The likeness, though, was lost because of the sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit, which was lost because of sin. Therefore, Christ coming into the world, right, the second person of blessed journey, takes on human flesh because it's the perfection of the image of which we are called to do and allows us a path to perfection, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because the giver of the Holy Spirit, right, comes to us, Father, through the Son. And therefore, the sanctification of man, right, is one of the results of the incarnation. That is how the effects of the incarnation that occur to Christ are passed on to us. Therefore, without the gift of the Holy Spirit, we will not have the image fully restored and healed in us. And ultimately, you need both hands at work within creation to bring us to salvation. It's a beautiful, beautiful yeah, image. That is just awesome. <laughs> so man is restored by the incarnate Christ 
Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful, beautiful image? And you could see, and what I love about the image, all right, is you see the two hands, right? So there's like a lot of that Christian art where you have the two hands. And so you could see God the Father wrapping us in his two hands of, of, the, of his son and of his spirit, kind of bringing us, carrying us to eternal glory, right? So in a sense, it, it, he's using still scriptural images. We're not talking philosophy, like philosophical concepts, which you'll do mm -hmm. in the next century, right? But, but there's an intuition that we have to ask the question, well, how is this happening? And so these fundamental insights, right, the relationship of the spirit to the father and to the son, the nature of the restoration of holiness in man, the fact that we are not totally depraved in the fall, these are fundamental beliefs that we have as Catholic Christians that Irenaeus is giving birth to. And there's a very famous saying Irenaeus used. You have heard this, I'm sure, in some way, shape, or form. The glory of God is man fully alive. Or the glory of God is the human person fully alive. What does it mean for Irenaeus for the human person to be fully alive? All right, so it is the image of God and the likeness of God fulfilled. The image of God in Christ and the likeness of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the human person fully alive. And that is the glory of God. So when God looks upon all creation in the book of Genesis and sees that the highest of all creation is mm -hmm. man, that's his glory fully realized in Christ. And we're invited to have it in discipleship with Christ, ultimately one day in heaven. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. It's absolutely. It, it's also beautiful. excellency. That sentence is also mm -hmm. kind of convicting because then I look at myself and I say, "Am I fully alive enough that the glory of God is shining through?" Ah, excellent. That's excellent. That's the point. That's the point. Right? Is it shining through in my life? Some parts yes, some parts no. Right? I obscure it through my own sinfulness. Right, exactly, exactly. But the invitation is to allow this transformation that in eternal life is made complete once we enter into the mystery of death and our flesh is glorified, right? And our spirit is glorified. Yeah. I mean, the other image that, that Irenaeus talks about which then the fathers of the next century debate, right, is Mary, is Mary, right? He speaks of Mary as the new hmm. Eve, right? He speaks of Mary undoing the knots that Eve created. But there's a basic theological intuition Right? So if you're going to have the second person all right, of the Blessed Trinity, which would be later on more formalized right, in that language, you're going to have God enter into the world right, and give, be given birth to, and humanity is fallen, then we need a new beginning. 
we need a, a, a soil that is untainted and unsinned. That would be the worthy place where God could enter into his creation. And therefore, she is the new Eve. And what I find so beautiful in that, again, it's scriptural, but you can see the seeds of what the church later came to understand, right, as the Immaculate Conception, precisely because Mary, to be the new Eve and the pure soil, could not be born with the same original sin that everyone else who is a descendant of Adam and Eve would be born with. And that was an extraordinary intervention on the part of God. So Irenaeus, seven, I don't know, 1600 plus years prior, in an image using scripture, lays the foundation for what philosophy, in philosophical terms, in dogmatic terms, in doctrinal terms developed over many centuries, would describe as, right, yeah. the Immaculate Conception yeah. of all It's amazing that that was right? believed, clearly believed and explained and taught as early as the second century. Yeah. So, but so you see John Henry Newman. Uh -huh. Let's go back to Henry Newman, right? So the intellectual pursuit, right? The what's the apostolic? What's the found, doctrinal foundation? It is an unbroken line from the apostles, and you could see how it builds, not because it's new teaching, but it is more profound teaching yes. of old truths, right? It's a fuller understanding of what's yes. rooted there, and Irenaeus has much of that. Yeah. Right, so in a sense, Irenaeus, Irenaeus is almost a theology from below, right? It, it starts with the human condition. It starts with the, I'm going to say the, the 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 very earthiness of scripture and all its 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 imagery, right? Versus a theology from above, which is much more of the theology of starting with the divinity, right? Starting with the divine premises. He starts with much more of the human from below experientially, which the Vatican Council tried to re recover. But um, I'm yeah. delighted that he's a doctor of the church. Long overdue. Awesome. Yeah, long overdue. And there's much more. I mean, we could go on to it. But the bottom line is, if someone were to say, okay, so what do I do with this? Well, I would think, the writings of John Henry Newman are easily accessible. Yeah. People should read them because you're not going to be the worst for it. And for St. Irenaeus, his writings, he doesn't have that much, but in English yeah. there, read them, read them because you will be shocked just like John Henry Newman, right? That there's an unbroken echo and re-echo of the truth. Who is Jesus Christ? Amen. Okay. So uh, let's take our final break, Excellency, and uh, we'll be right back. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be back with a listener question after this. Hey, this is Matt Sparazza from The Tangent. Each week on The Tangent, my co-host, Father Sam Kachuba, and I go on tangents to show how intertwined the Catholic faith and our culture really are. With guests like Scott Hahn, Dr. Greg Pitaro, Kristalina Everett, and so many more, Tangent is always entertaining and informative. Check us out on Fridays at 12.30 on 103.9 FM, 1350 AM, anytime on the Veritas app, or wherever you get your podcasts. God bless. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. 
Alright, Excellency. Straight up simple question this week. Maybe it's not so simple. It looks simple on the on the surface. It's simply uh, <laughs> the question is, Bishop Frank, what is your favorite prayer? Okay, now my answer to this may be very strange, but it is not a typical prayer that we learned when we were young. It is actually Psalm 100. And the last three lines of Psalm 100 are some of the most beautiful lines in all sacred scripture. And I have spent many an hour reflecting on it. And in the translation that exists in the Office of Readings, it goes like this. Indeed, how good is the Lord, eternal his merciful love. He is faithful from age to age. That middle line, as I related the story years ago when we started the podcast, how I wanted that to be my Episcopal model, and I discovered that Bishop Sullivan, God rest his soul, had picked it before me. But you could spend a lifetime praying over eternal Mm. his merciful love first in my life and then in the lives of people I know and then the life of the world. So many a time I pray this as a, like a mantra, yes. you know, like a Christian mantra, hmm. right? In the car. So if I, you were to ask me, ab- apart from the traditional prayers, what's the prayer that is my favorite? It would be this. Awesome. It would wow. be this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Awesome, Excellency. We're on the precipice of Advent. I know. Maybe next week we'll chat a bit about it. My favorite time of the year. Only this year it's the shortest Advent can possibly be. It's only three weeks. But it's a beautiful time of the year. Uh Awesome. Yes. Okay. And before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Sure. Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, O Lord, for all the blessings you have given us. And as we end this liturgical year, renew our minds and hearts to be committed and convicted of our faith, to be zealous preachers in witness and word of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we ask that your Holy Spirit bless us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, my friend. Enjoy this. This really feels like winter. <laughs> the beginning of winter. Thanks, Excellency. <laughs>